There's actually, um, let's see, in Acts chapter 13, you remember that last week, uh, Paul and Barnabas had actually been in a prayer meeting, and they'd been in a prayer meeting with the, the leaders in the church at Antioch, and they were two of the leaders from the church of Antioch, and as they were praying, as they were fasting, the Lord actually stepped into their prayer meeting, which is always the hope that it wouldn't just be a bunch of people together uh, saying stuff and hoping that the Lord hears, but that he would, in fact, join in their midst and teach us and reveal to us the things that he's trying to show us in our daily lives. Prayer is more than just us giving our requests to God, but it's also us saying, Lord, we're open to what you want to show us, what we need to do next. And so as they were open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, um, they received a word from the Lord, and I don't believe that the word spoke audibly. I think it was just either through one of the prophets that was there, or perhaps just uh, them just in their time as they were praying as a group, individuals, God was moving in their hearts and just revealing to them, hey, this is something that I've placed there and I want to use you for this particular instance. And so these men had been serving in the church there in Antioch. And they'd been faithful. They'd been there for over a year. Uh, Barnabas got there before Saul did. And then Barnabas, being involved in the work, had actually went to where Saul was, picked him up and said, hey, you need to come back to Antioch, see what God is doing, and, and come help us out. We could use an extra hand. And so Barnabas, being the encourager, got Saul and brought him to Antioch. And there Saul got to basically use the gifts that God had given him. He was a Jewish scholar for many years and he had persecuted, he was so bent on knowing as much as he could about the Jewish faith that once he got saved, the knowledge of the Old Testament that he had that he found out later pointed to the person of Jesus Christ, he was able to then teach others based on the scriptures that he understood as the Holy Spirit revealed to him that those stories were more than just Old Testament lore or uh, what's the word? Lore. lore, thank you. Uh, more than just Old Testament lore or folk stories or like fables like we teach and pass on, but they were actually all stories that God was working in to bring this nation of Israel to the point where they would recognize, hey, we can't live the Ten Commandments on our own. And over and over again, we failed at being obedient and faithful to God. So Lord, what do you, I mean, we need a Savior. And so the Lord then did that. He he sent a Savior that would live the Ten Commandments, that would just live His life completely obedient to the Father, and then die for the sins of the world. And through that death brought life for anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus. And so Paul, knowing this, experiencing it personally, would then be able to impart that wisdom, that information, that life-changing fact to the rest of the world. And so in Antioch, they were praying in Acts chapter 13, verse 4. And it says there in verse 3, they fasted and prayed and those elders of that church laid hands on them and they sent them away. They said, hey, we don't want you to be here anymore if God wants to send you. So get out, go, go with God, be useful in the thing he's calling you to. Persecute towards that goal, that calling he's placed on your life. Don't stick around here. So verse 4 being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. Um, uh, 
Casey, would you mind hitting the next button on the computer back there? And it's the last one, so no one else will have to go back there and touch the computer. But I, I read these two verses, and the first time I ever read the book of Acts, I read all these names. Seleucia, just the right arrow. There you go. I read all these names like Seleucia and Cyprus and Salamis, and I wasn't very good in geography, so I need pictures. So I put a picture up there for you of the, the map, and I don't know if you can see it that well, but it's a map of the first missionary journey of Paul. And we know that it was not just Paul, but it was Paul and Barnabas. But as they took off, there in Antioch on the very far right, they went down to the south to a place called Seleucia. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong because I got my American accent going. But in Seleucia, they grabbed a ship and they, they rode with a bunch of other people, I'm sure, and they sailed to Salamis in Cyprus. So when he says there in verse 5 that they arrived in Salamis, it's not that he says from there they sailed to Cyprus and then they ended up in some other place, but they sailed to Cyprus, which is the name of the island, and they arrived in Salamis, this city, this region here. So you see Salamis on the map is on the east coast of the island. And so when they arrived there, verse, uh, verse 5 says, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. So when they arrived in this city, the first thing that they did was they went to the synagogue. And as we read through and study the book of Acts, you'll see that this is kind of how Paul did ministry. He would arrive in a place and he would go directly to the synagogues because those were the people that he could relate the most with. He was going to the people that had the Old Testament scriptures that we find fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So they had the basis knowledge, the scriptural knowledge of how God had dealt with the nation of Israel in the past. And in the synagogue, we don't see the synagogue in the Old Testament because they had the temple, which was in Jerusalem. There was one temple. And the way that they would go to the temple is they would, they would go up there for the feast and they would worship the Lord. They would give offerings. They would, uh, they would give uh, animals, bulls and goats, and they would sacrifice them in the altar. But when the, when the temple was destroyed and, and they could no longer worship that way, they found another way to worship. They built synagogues. And when they would get together in the synagogue, they would read from the scriptures. And then usually a rabbi, a teacher, would stand up and they would talk about those scriptures. So it was no longer about doing the sacrifices, even though Jewish people believed that to worship the Lord, you had to make sacrifices to deal with sin. They didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. But what they would know later, if they would understand what Jesus had done, is they would no longer have to make sacrifices, but Jesus, in fact, was their sacrifice. But they were still teaching that you had to make sacrifice to be right in the sight of God. Kind of funny, right? So they got together and they would read the Old Testament passages and they would talk about them amongst one another. That's what the synagogue was for. So Saul, or Paul later he'll call himself, will get to these synagogues and he will talk about the Old Testament and blow them away. And then in the midst of that, start talking about how the fulfillment of those Old Testament laws and passages that they so righteously, they just persecute towards following. He would show them, hey, you know, this story right here points to Jesus. See this story here points to Jesus. See the story of Noah where the flood happened and then the whole world was judged and yet eight were saved through an ark? That, that salvation was through the hand of God and that ark 
is the ark of God. That's to point to Jesus, how we are saved through water baptism, being taken down under the water and lifted back up again and delivered from God's judgment, new life. And so he would have just a wealth Most of the book that we have and that we carry, the 39 books in the Old Testament, he'd have plenty of of scriptures to start with, with these Old Testament, these Jewish followers. And so he would go first to those places, share Jesus with them, and whether they received him or not, then he would go to the other places and share with them. So this is the, the way that he will go to all these different towns. But it says there in verse five, that as he did this, they also had John as their assistant. This is John Mark that they had actually brought from Jerusalem. They took him back with them up to the church at Antioch where they were serving. And when in the prayer meeting, God called them to go and serve in all these other nations and, and be evangelists, basically, they said, yep, we're going to go do it. But just because God called them to be evangelists, that was their direct calling, does not mean that they are no longer supposed to disciple people. <coughs> And so they took advantage of this young man by the name of John Mark and they took him with them because as they served and fulfilled God's purpose for the life, they wanted to basically have an intern or apprentice. You know, we have apprentices that they really don't know how to do what they're doing yet. When I worked at the gas company, they had welders and then they would have welders apprentices. Now you don't want the apprentice doing the work, but he can definitely come alongside the welder, hand him welding rods, do the different stuff help with prepping to weld because he wasn't certified. But as he watched the welder, he would learn the things that the welder would do. And so basically, that's the idea of discipling someone. When you are a coach and you disciple someone, that means that you're coaching them, but you're also teaching them the right way to play the sport, to kind of take the gifts that they already have that you recognize in them and try to refine them. Maybe their batter stance. Maybe they're running. Or, you know, you got the guys coaching on each end that will help them, hey, they can see the whole field and they'll say, hey, go, 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 you can steal this base. That's discipleship, teaching someone to become disciplined at a sport, to practice, to encourage them. At our jobs, we have people that we have influence over. And many times when a boss gets a new hire, what do they do? They, they take that new hire and they program them. They basically say, this is how we do things in our business. And this is how I want you to continue doing it because we're all going to do it the same way because that is our business model. And so they disciple them. They become disciplined at whatever the task is that they're going to be doing regularly. And so in the same way, in our Christian faith, in order for people to be built up and learn to walk with the Lord, they're going to come in. They're new hires. They're new at this. They they got saved. They have enough understanding to know that Jesus died for my sins that he was buried and then he rose again. So in, in, I'm going to be given everlasting life, even though I might die and I'm going to, I will be rose from the dead as according to Jesus was rose from the dead. He was the first fruits. And so in the same way, I'm going to be risen from the dead and I'm going to spend eternity with it, in heaven with him. But what about the meantime? How am I supposed to walk with the Lord before that? Because our salvation is more than just about procuring heaven for us. It's about living everlasting life, walking with him daily, giving glory to his name as we do what we might consider mundane tasks. And so John, my point is, is that John Mark is going to be discipled by these men. He's going to watch how they conduct themselves on the mission that God has given them. And as they conduct themselves, they're going to teach him. 
hey, we're doing this because. You know, he's going to go, hey, why are we sailing to Cyprus? Because God told us, go to all nations and spread the gospel. Okay, but, you know, how, why are we dealing with so-and-so this way? And why are we sharing the gospel in the, t- in the synagogue first? And, and all these things will come up, just like when we do things at our homes and our children ask us, why are we doing it this way? And then we, at that point, we teach them, this is why we make our bed. Or this is why we brush our teeth. Or whatever the thing is, we disciple them. And as far as spiritually speaking, we have to begin discipling our children in the home. But before we can ever disciple anybody, we have to do it ourselves. Paul and Barnabas had been walking with the Lord. They had been faithful to what he called them to do. And then as a result of that, God dropped somebody in their lives to disciple while they were doing what they were doing. Discipleship is not this big complicated thing. It's doing what God has for you to do, falling in love with Jesus, doing what he's given you to do, and taking others with you. Taking others with you wherever he takes you. It doesn't have to be something necessarily that they're called to. John Mark, it doesn't say anything about him being called to go do what Saul and Barnabas said we're going to do. Because Saul and Barnabas were called to go and share the gospel. But it says he separated them to go do it. But that didn't mean they couldn't disciple somebody along the way. So... Now, verse 6, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. So you look on the map again, and Salamis is on the east coast, and Paphos is on kind of the southwest coast. Who knows, maybe the weather's better, I don't know. But as they're traveling, it seems like they systematically went across the entire island. Who knows what happened in between there. But it says when they arrived in Paphos, they they came across a certain man. So I'm going to make the assumption that they didn't just sail to Cyprus to share the gospel in Salamis and Paphos, but along the way, as they met up with folks, they probably did the same thing they did in Salamis. They went to the synagogue, if there was one, and they shared Jesus. And when they get to Paphos, my assumption is, and maybe you could argue this, that they went to Paphos and they did the same thing. They went to the temple, they shared Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures with those who were in Paphos. And then it says there in verse 6, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. So we have a couple of different people here introduced, one of which is called Bar-Jesus. Now, do you guys remember in the gospel accounts what they call, what Jesus called Peter when he first met him? He called him Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is just a prefix to a name. It's just what they would say. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. So this man, this sorcerer who... Luke writes here, was a false prophet that they came upon. They found a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew. He was Jewish in culture, whose name was Bar-Jesus. He called himself son of Jesus. Now, false prophets don't usually say, hey, I'm a false prophet. Hey, I'm going to lie to you. I'm trying to point, I'm trying to pull you away from your faith in Jesus. What they say is, I'm a son of Jesus. I'm a Christian just like you. And it's funny, because I don't have this in my notes, but a couple weeks ago, I get this little card underneath our door. 
And you guys might see these people riding their bikes around town, wearing a tie, wearing stuff that no one should wear while riding a bike. And they'll show up. They're always in pairs. And they show up and they want to tell you about the faith of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And what they will tell you, and I went to their little website because I wanted to see what they are telling people. They say, hey, we're Christians just like everybody else. We believe in the same Jesus that you do. The problem is, is that if you really start reading what they believe, they don't believe what this thing says. They don't believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. The point, the reason they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is number one, to call themselves Bar-Jesus, Son of Jesus, where, hey, we're just like you guys. But they also have additional book that they carry around with their Bible called, um, what's it called, Steve? The Book of Mormon, which was written by Joseph Smith. Thank you. <laughs> but basically, they believe that you, you need more than just the Bible to believe in God. You need to be able to understand what the Latter-day Saints had to say about it. My problem with that is, when do you stop? How many more books are going to come out? It seems to me that the apostles were the ones that had authority to write scriptures in the New Testament. And there's a couple of other things that go along with that. But my point is, is that false teachers will come. They'll knock on your door. They'll invite themselves in. Do not let them into your homes because they are there to deceive you. Number one, to draw you away from Jesus. Now they still need Jesus. And I would encourage you, go out on the porch and talk to them. But don't have them in your house. Because they want to get a foothold. They want to give you their literature. And it's not good. I've had these conversations and they will not receive what you have to teach them. They're there to teach you only. They got nothing to learn. They're, they're closed books. They're not, you know, and so share Jesus with them and say, God loves you and I will pray for you and then pray for them because they're deceived. Deceived people take what they've been deceived with and they try to deceive others whether they realize that's what they're doing or not. And so we need to be vigilant of those things. So it says there that, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Now the proconsul in Paphos is actually kind of like a senator from Rome. He's a delegate from the Roman government that's the leader of this area of Cyprus. And so he's the leader there. He has much, uh, he's got a lot of pull. He's got a, a lot of authority. But it seems to me that he listens to this man by the name of Bargesus. So he was with him there, and I don't know why he showed up, but it seems to me that every time that someone is asking questions about God, someone's, uh, maybe you're witnessing to somebody at work, there's always somebody else that's going to come along at the same time that you do to try to confuse them, or discourage them, or <laughs> mock them, or whatever, and to draw them away from the possibility of them giving their lives to Christ. Jesus wants to open our eyes to the truth. He wants to be real with us. He wants to reveal to us, number one, that there is sin and that there is righteousness. And he wants to reveal to us that one day he will return and judge the world, just like in the days of Noah. But that at the same time, he's provided a way for our sin to be dealt with and we can be freed from not only the guilt of sin, but the power of sin. But what the enemy wants to do is come alongside and say, yeah, but you can't be forgiven. You've done too much. Or he'll say, Jesus wasn't really the son of God and he can't really forgive your sins. He was just another guy. 
So we have this man by the name of Elimus, we'll find out, who came alongside right after this man said, hey, Saul and Barnabas, come and share with me the message that you have to share because perhaps he had heard that he, they were sharing in the synagogue locally. I don't know. But then he says, hey, why don't you come to me, share with me what you have to share. So this, this sorcerer comes along in verse 8. It says, but Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Elimus is his real name. And it's oftentimes that's the case. They like to portray themselves as something that they're not. And meanwhile, their real name is something that would reveal to us who they really are. And Elimus is who Luke writes down is his real name. And it says in my Bible, for so his name is translated. So not only is he a sorcerer, but his name literally means sorcerer. It's like Luke saying, by the way, his name's sorcerer. Just saying. You can draw your own conclusions. And so as he tells him this, he's seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then verse 9 says, Then Saul, who is called Paul, for the first time we see, I've been going back and forth between Saul and Paul, but this is the first time that the book of Acts refers to him as Paul. Saul actually is a Hebrew name, and Paul is a Greek name. And so he's the apostle called to share with the Gentiles, and so he takes on this Gentile name of Paul. So he's, it says here, he is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and said. I want you to notice that Paul deals very harshly with this individual, this sorcerer, who claims to be basically a Christian. If we call ourselves a son of Jesus or a daughter of Jesus, we're saying we're like him. If you say that you have a certain last name and you say, I'm, you know, if Lucy grows up and says, I'm the son of Mike or the daughter, or excuse, <laughs> the daughter of Mike or the daughter of Kelly, what she's doing is she's identifying. She says, I'm from them. They're my people. I'm like them. That's what we say when we share a last name or whatever. But what he's saying here is, is uh, I lost my place. When Paul comes along and deals with him very harshly, what he says is, he basically, he looks at him, he studies him, and then he makes some statements. He gets very bold with him. He deals with him, what I would say, very harshly. He says there uh, in verse 9, it doesn't say that he was full of anger. He doesn't say he was filled with himself. He doesn't say that. It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked intently at this man and he said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Wow, harsh words. We oftentimes think in our uh, politically correct society that to say that anything like this in this magnitude to somebody is rude. And while it could be could, or perceived that way, if we have the heart of God for a situation, if we're like Paul here, trying to witness to somebody, sharing the truth with them, and somebody else comes alongside to deter them from listening and is trying to basically throw dust up in the air so the man will be confused and walk away not knowing Jesus, it's okay to deal with people harshly if it's in the spirit. 
If you're dealing with them harshly because you got personal beef with them or because they said something or because you just want to show yourself, you know, show other people how bold you are, that's not the right heart. Paul was not full of indignation that came from his own soul. He was full of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit yearns to convict people of sin so that they will be freed from sin, so that they will know the truth and that truth would set them free. It's like when, uh, <laughs> we don't know this, but it's like a shepherd. If he's out in the field and he's watching over his flock by night and a wolf comes in, what is that shepherd going to do? He's taken his whole life. He's left town. He spends all of his time with these sheep. He cares for them, not only because they're his livelihood, but many times they kind of become like pets. So if a wolf comes in, what do you think that shepherd's going to do to that wolf? If he sees one luring away one of his sheep, he's going to go out there. He's going to take care of that sheep. And I don't believe that he's going to be real gentle with the thing. Because you can send a wolf out of the flock and you can deal with them and say, hey, don't come back anymore. But what do wolves do? They eat sheep. And so what do we do with them? We disable them. We reveal them for who they are. We point them out to people. Hey, this guy doesn't have your good intentions in mind. I'm trying to point you to Jesus. He's going to draw you away. Beware of that. And he disables them by telling them, look, you're a son of deceit. You're an enemy of righteousness. You need to know that because this is the most loving thing you can tell someone that's trying to draw people away from Jesus. You're an enemy of all righteousness, all of it. And so he's perverting the ways of the Lord. And perverting means to twist something. Take something that's right and twist it to our own gain. And that's what he's doing there. He's perverting. And what I mean by perverting is that he's saying that he's a son of Jesus. He's blurring the lines between sinful and righteous. He's, he's calling something good that is not. Just as bad as calling something good that is not good. So in verse uh, 11, he not only calls him out for what he is, but then he pronounces judgment on this man. He disables him. And it's by the power of God, verse 11. And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around <coughs> seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I find that amazing. Paul, how did he get saved? He was on the road to Damascus. He was an enemy of the Lord, basically a false prophet. He knew the truth of the Old Testament, but he was trying to keep people from following Jesus. He was no different than this man that we're looking at today, Elimus. He was on the way to persecute Christians, to draw them out of their homes, to put them in jail for their faith, to keep them from believing. And so he's got this man, and how does he deal with him? He calls him out, reveals to him who he really is, and then he pronounces blindness on him. Saul knew that when God blinds somebody and they realize that they are blind, that they might just repent and turn to the Lord. Ask Lord, forgive me for my sin. You're right, I'm blind. I'm trying to lead other people into blindness. Please heal me. Make me spiritually able to see so that I can physically able to see, be physically able to see. And so Saul knows that one of the best things you can do is reveal to people their blindness so that they will ask the Lord, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Help me to see you in a very real way. And notice here it says 
that he went around. He was seeking someone to lead him by the hand. We don't see anything in scripture about a line that's ever repenting. But I truly believe as a man who had been forgiven by God for his sins, that Paul was not just judging this man, but he was hoping that this man would repent. That just like uh, this man, the proconsul that he was trying to share the faith with, he was also in a very real way, in a very distinct way, trying to be bold with this man so he would repent too. I think oftentimes we think of uh, someone that's a false prophet, and we stinking false prophets, what's their deal anyway? But if not for the grace of God, I'd be a false prophet as well. I wasn't a sorcerer, I wasn't doing black magic, but I was teaching people my ways, and my ways were not the straight ways of the Lord. They were the crooked ways. They were the ways I was leading people into all kinds of sins, more, you know, okay sins with our culture, but I was still leading people into sin. And so I love this about the Lord that he is using Paul not only to reveal his plan for salvation to this proconsul, this leader of the whole town of Paphos, but he's also trying to lead this ungodly, this deceitful man into the ways of righteousness. I believe that's beautiful. But notice how the proconsul responds to this man being made blind, how he responds to the truth being revealed. It says, verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I love this because it doesn't say that he was astonished at the man being made blind. It doesn't say that he was astonished at how bold these men were. It says that he was astonished at the way that the Lord was teaching them. The way the Lord had made them fruitful vines that were able to go and leave their church even and and go to these other places and share the gospel in many different ways as they went. Um, Let's see here. I love this because um, there are some things we can draw from this text today. How do we tell when someone's a false prophet? Well, I believe, number one, the way that we can tell someone is a false prophet, we can find in verse 8. It says that they withstood Saul and Barnabas, this man, Elimus. He withstood those who believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, that God's word was true, and they were teaching it. He got in the way of those that were trying to share the faith with others. That makes a false prophet. Then it says in the same verse that he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So, They call to question those that are the Lord's and teaching the word of God. And then they also try to draw innocent people away from the faith. And number three, I believe the most important way to tell if someone is is a false prophet is by being yourself filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gives us discernment to tell between what is real and what is false. In John chapter 16, uh, Jesus there gives the way... Um, or what the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what he does in the life of a believer. John chapter 16, verse 5. He had had said in verse, uh, let's see, John chapter 16, verse 8, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But then he also says there in verse 13, John chapter 16, However, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you, meaning those who believe, into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine, and he will declare it to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Meaning that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not only that he would convict us of sin and lead us to salvation, but then in the thing that he calls us to do, he will give us information that we need to be effective witnesses. He'll reveal to us the character of people. He'll give us discernment to be able to tell of what spirit they are. I don't believe that Paul just looked at the guy and he was like, hey, you're a false prophet. I think the Lord gave him that knowledge so that he could deal with him directly and be a witness and, and, and even just say, hey, you need to repent. You need to deal with your sin because you're drawing people away from the faith. I don't think Paul was just super sensitive to people's ideologies and the things they'd been through. I think Paul had a word from the Lord for that guy. And so that's what the Lord does for us. So as you meet people and you're assessing them and you're making judgments, not because we're judging people finally, but because we're trying to learn to be able to tell between the unclean and the clean so we know how to pray for them. How do we know if someone's a Christian or not? How do we know if someone that's a, even a, a teacher that may be on TV or on the radio, how do we know whether or not they are of the Lord? So ask these questions. Do they attempt to obey the word of God? Do they see the word of God as the authority in their life? Are they hungry for the word of God? Do they seek it regularly? Are they in church? Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian, but it, it does help us to be able to tell. Do they enjoy fellowship with other Christians? Are, are, you know, birds of a feather flock together kind of thing? Or do they tend to hang out with mostly unsaved people? Now, at the same time, we should be the salt of the world. We're not supposed to just hang out with only Christians all the time. But do they enjoy fellowship with Christians? Are they humble? Does their life proclaim to you that, hey, I'm not everything, God is? Are they willing to serve others? Our Savior is a servant. Do they reflect that character of God? Do they seek to make peace with their enemies? That's a tough one, right? It's hard. But do they do that? Let me turn it around. Do you attempt to obey the word of God? Is the scripture what you take as the authority by which you live your life? Do you enjoy fellowship with Christians? Is the per are, are you humble? Are you willing to serve others? Do you seek to make peace with your enemies? Are you seeking to build up others by pointing them to Jesus? Is there a little bit of a false prophet in you? I guess is the question I'm asking. Because I, I look at this man and I think, you know, how often do I lift up my opinions or my ways of living over the word of God and try to disciple people? And, and in doing so, I can end up leading people away from the straight way of the Lord, adding some curves in there, trying to mix a little bit of truth with a little bit of false. That's what a false prophet does. They look on the outside like they got it all together and that they're really, you know, what they say they are. But the reality is, is most false prophets... They, they have a little bit of the truth. They do talk about Jesus a little bit, but they mix in all the world's ideologies and they try to make God in their own image rather than just trusting in who he said he is. Paul made a distinction here when this man opposed him. Paul drew a line in the sand and by the authority of God he gave them. He was willing to stand up for what he believed in and as a result of his boldness in making that distinction, the truth was made known and this man, this proconsul, he was saved. So how did Paul, how was he so effective in this? How was his witness, like what, what discipleship program did he get involved in? What, how did he become so effective as a minister? 
Well, I think it's in the same way that he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 to be effective. You see, Timothy was in a similar situation as Paul was. Paul was in Paphos, which is on the side of Cyprus there, which was a city that was full of immorality. And that immorality came out of a darkness because they did not have the word of God. They were not being taught the word of God. And so being in this immoral culture surrounded by temples full of temple prostitutes and pagan worship and false prophets, obviously, and sorcerers. How are you supposed to lead people to the Lord when all that stuff's going on? How are you supposed to share the gospel with people when they're in such darkness? And Timothy was in the same situation, but he was in a place called Ephesus. It was a port town, and I don't know if it's up there or not. There it is. Up there, you see where it says Asia and Galatia. Go to the left, see Thyatira. And down there, right there in the middle between Miletus and Thyatira, there's Ephesus. And Ephesus was a port town. It was a port city. Huge. And you know what that city was well known for? The sailors that were out in vessels that were gone at sea for a long time, kind of like our Navy, they would go into these ports. And when they got there, they would go and worship in the temple. Well, the way that they worshiped was by getting with a prostitute, basically, and then offering money, and that would build up the temple, whether it was a temple of Diana or whether it was the temple of some other you know, Greek god. They would go in and they would worship that way. And because of the, them being all over the world, they would bring in some sinful things that they had. It's kind of like our own soldiers that went to Vietnam. They brought a lot of the drug culture back with them when they came back from war. And so the same thing was happening in Ephesus. And so Timothy, being a young man, not knowing how to go against this kind of false ideology about religion and culture, he was trying to deal with this because it was all sin. How do, I, how do I become an effective witness in such a dark culture? And so Paul wrote to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He gave him some advice, and I believe he got that advice from the situation we saw today. Because Paul, he was just following the Lord. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes to him, he says, Don't let anyone despise you for your youth. And for anybody thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a youth. Paul was talking to Timothy, and in that day, for, to be a youth, it meant you were like 40 years old. So you can be a youth a lot farther than our culture says you're youthful. But he says, don't let any, anybody be, despise you for your youth, but be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And then he gives them some ways to do this. Here's how you can live this out in verse 13. He said, till I come, give attention to the reading, to the teaching, to the exhortation of the word of God. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by the prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. In other words, remember that it's not, it wasn't your idea to go to Ephesus. God sent you there. Just like Paul had been sent to this place in Paphos by the laying on of hands by men that recognized the call that God placed on their lives. He says in verse 14, don't neglect the gift that's in you. God's gifted you. Be confident in that. Verse 15, meditate on these things, meaning the word of God, Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. In other words, follow God so hard that the people around you will recognize that you are following God. 
Follow God to the extent that it makes an outward change to your life that other people will be able to witness. They're going to see Jesus in you. And then he says there in verse 16, and this is the key point I want to make. He says, take heed. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. In other words, the things that you're learning, the things that you're teaching, make sure you apply them to yourself first because as a result, he says, continue in them, verse 16, for in doing this, you will save both yourself. In other words, you'll be saved because you'll continue walking the straight path of the Lord. And then you will save those who hear you. Paul's testimony was more about just, it wasn't just about what he was preaching. It was what he was putting into practice. It was what he was living. And when he lived that, when he ended up in pathos, and he made a direct distinction between good and evil, and he practiced that outwardly, it was made evident to that leader, that proconsul, because he believed in the Lord because of the testimony of Paul, because of what he said, and because of what he practiced. When you practice what you preach, it's like taking the words that you say and saying them through a megaphone. It turns the volume up to 11. And when the volume is turned up to 11, we don't have to talk louder. Actions speak louder than words. And because of that, notice that Paul is a fruitful minister there in Paphos in an evil, a wicked generation, a wicked place. He looked completely different than the people around him. They saw the confidence. They saw the calling on Paul's life. And they said, I don't know what he's got that's different than me, but I want it. And that leader of that city turned his life over to the Lord because of the actions of Paul. Do people see Jesus in you? Do they see the faithfulness, not just one time, but throughout every day that they notice you? Is God using your testimony to chip away at their hard hearts? Because as you are faithful to just be obedient to the thing that God is showing you each day, if you do that, people will see the change in your life and it will affect them for eternity. Not just tomorrow, it won't just change their behavior, it will change their eternal destination. And it's worth it. Paul saw that, and he saw it so much that he encouraged Timothy, keep going, I know it's hard. I've been there, buddy. But keep following the Lord because he's going to use your testimony to proclaim the gospel. You won't have to quote it chapter and verse, your life will. And then he'll give you opportunities sometimes to share chapter and verse. And notice that when the proconsul asked for or when, when they came to the proconsul, that that proconsul had actually said, hey, you know that, those two guys, Saul and Barnabas, they just came into town? Send them to me. I want to hear what they have to say. I wonder if it was just because of their testimony, because of what they had been doing. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Paul.